Hello and welcome to Voices to Dream. I'm your host, Suzanne Mann, the Challenge Girl. And today I have an episode with a psychologist. Psychologist Chris Baston. I've got to ask him if I'm supposed to call him a doctor. I'm not actually sure. I think it's probably Dr. Chris Baston. And he's going to be telling us a bit about himself, his life, how he got into being a psychologist. I guess, you know, I'm interested in what inspires people to to want to help others in this way. And I guess one thing for me as well is I there's part of me that thinks it must be very draining too to listen to to so much of what other people are are going through. So that's something I want to talk about, but also a big focus for today is going to be on midlife crises. I guess I feel like not that I like to admit that I'm in my midlife, but I guess I'm probably getting there. And more and more my friends, people around me, I guess I feel like maybe we're hitting that sort of stage. And so I'm interested to get his take on that. So I'm hoping that it's going to be, you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be an interesting episode for you. And once again, I just wanted to say thank you for listening. Please, if possible, like, subscribe, share, and comment, 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 comment on all of the interfaces, whether it's social media like Facebook, Instagram, or on YouTube or the podcasting networks. Comments are probably the things that are seen as the most powerful, if that makes sense. And so the more comments that someone gets, the more they are then shared forward. So keep that in mind for anything that you're, you ever see that you really like, uh, more than just pushing the like button. If you're able to retweet it or, you know, if it's something like Instagram or Facebook, just put a comment there, even if it's like an emoji. And I'm sure that that person will really appreciate your help. So thank you very much. Enjoy the show. And let's all learn how to, let's all learn how to maybe take a breath and work through this next part of our lives. Bye-bye. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Voices to Dream. I'm Suzanne Mann, the Challenge Girl, and I have I have checked, and it is Dr. Chris Baston with me. Although he's happy for me to call him Chris. Yeah. <laughs> now, Chris, we're going to now. Well, just so everyone knows, a little bit of background. I know. I know Chris, not because he's my psychologist, but because I used to exercise with his wife for many, many years in Australia. And every now and then we'd go on some trail run and Chris would join us. And I knew the back of Chris very well. <laughs> <laughs> because Chris is the one that was running in front of me. Um, so Chris, I, before we get into who you are, I just wanted to check in with you and see how you're checking in. Because for me, it's what, like it's about 2, 2.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday afternoon in the Bahamas, but I've woken Chris up early and it's like 6.30 in the morning in Australia. How are you checking in, Chris? Um, I'm. Uh, thank you for asking. It's, I really like your check-in um, ritual. It's really, it's, it's so much 
better than saying, hi, how are you going? You know, actually saying, we're going to do a check-in now. Um, and I'm, you know, I really want to know. I actually really want to know how you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, I've decided after listening to your podcast and listening to your check-in, I, I do clinical supervision with colleagues at work in my <clears throat> psychology practice. And we often start, we focus on case discussions and things like that. And we're like, yeah, how are you going? And okay, let's talk about your cases. And I've decided I'm going to do the check-in. And they're like, I actually really want to know. Like, let's check in, yeah. see how, how we're both going. What's What are we bringing to this meeting? So anyway, I'll, I like that idea. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, going be, I'm going to be bringing that into certain meetings. Obviously, when I'm with my clients, our check-in can last 30 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. like we try to actually keep it down to 15. So we've got <clears throat> the rest of the, the consultation time to actually advance things. But the check-in, we don't always do it when we need to. Anyway, thank you for asking. Right now, if I do an internal check-in, I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. I'm still in the afterglow of having half of January off um, where I did all the things that I wanted to do and really relaxed. And a month, a week before Christmas, I was um, depleted and pretty tired and just worn out from pushing myself really hard, which I tend to do with work and, and family and things like that. So right now I'm feeling like, you know, rearing and ready to go for the day but also the rest of the year nice it's important to get that balance right isn't it and you know what is it's really nice to hear someone who is in your position saying that they're not perfect Mm. you know that that you get worn down as well so it's it's you know we all we're all in that situation aren't we absolutely we just we have to accept that and I think when you when you give yourself permission to say, I need to work on things all the time with humility, it's just easier to do the work that you have to do to look after yourself. Mm, mm. Definitely. Oh, well, that's lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that you're feeling rejuvenated from the, yeah, from the break you. as well. <laughs> and that, and then I've caught you while you're, while you're still in that rejuvenated mm-hmm. phase. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Chris, I guess I wanted to start because I was I was saying that I one of my focuses for this episode was I wanted to talk about the midlife crisis and everything, but I really wanted to, I really wanted to start with your story because I really do I feel like everyone has a story to tell no matter how boring some people think they are. <laughs> I love hearing people's stories. I'd love to know a bit about you, your, you know, how you grew up and mm-hmm. what inspired you to go into psychology. Um, that is an interesting story. I've reflected on that. I think when you're a psychologist, if you're a mental health professional and a and a therapist for somebody else, it's really important to examine your reasons for wanting to do that work. Sorry, so I, you... I apologize. I was just I I just thought I wasn't recording, but I am recording. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. apologize for that that look on my face just then. Please <laughs> go on. Um yeah, so no, it's an interesting question. My story in a summary, well, about me. So I'm 55-year-old guy who lives in Sydney, Australia, with his wife. Sarah and I have got two young adult sons that both happen to be living at home. One moved out for a few years, and now he's back because he's doing postgrad studies and 
everybody knows Sydney is an expensive place to live. If you haven't got a good job, you can't move out of home. So we've got no. two adult sons that we're that are living alongside us still. Um, you know, I love to, I love the outdoors, and Sydney is a great place to do outdoorsy things, whether it's surfing or bushwalking or cycling. And I'm pretty happy when I'm outdoors with my family and friends. <clears throat> um, that's one of the things I turn to when I'm feeling a bit depleted is to um, spend time with people and and be outdoors. Um, my and and I'm and I'm a clinical psychologist who you know and to be a clinical psychologist it means that you've you've gone and done postgraduate studies in clinical psychology. So I I did that at uni and, um, uh, as well to do my work. Um, when I grew up, I, I grew, grew born in England, but I, I grew up in Sydney, so I feel like an Aussie. Um, and um, who do you go for in the cricket? Parents, who do you go for in the cricket? Australia. Okay, you're an Aussie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and and when 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 we're playing England, yeah, exactly. You can't okay. really want really want Australian. If if England's playing somebody else, I don't even. I just don't feel aligned with England very much you know it's just not it's just not a thing I'm very aware that that's my culture that's my cultural background yeah um it was really interesting to examine my feelings when the queen died for instance and there was this sort of mm. outpouring of emotion and a sense of connection and I felt that you know I've been to Westminster Abbey I've been to see my family um origins in England you know really interested in genealogy so I feel connected with my roots there and I know that's my culture, but um, it doesn't feel like I owe England anything, you know. I feel much more tied to to an Australian identity. Um, anyway, mum, yeah, mum and dad were both health professionals. They actually met at they met at uni in anatomy class. Um, oh. Mum's mum mum's not with us anymore. She was a physiotherapist, um, and dad a, a medical researcher and a physician. Um, and so, yeah, mum ran her physio practice from the front studio in the house that we grew up in, suburban Sydney. So she was around all the time nice. for us. And we would yeah. often see her patients coming and going. Um, and uh, dad worked in a hospital and had a lab with a whole lot of scientists downstairs. And if he wasn't seeing a few patients up on the ward, he was downstairs in the lab trying to come up with new treatments and understanding the molecular science behind certain disorders. Um, and so they both, you know, uh, had sort of this science background um, and were really devoted to, to, the, to science and, and, for, and using science to help people. Um, but mum was a real spiritualist as well. Right. And, she was sort of, there was room for hard science, you know. She was really into astronomy as well, and would would tell me all about how Einstein's theories are being proven correct over time, even though he developed them in the twenties and thirties. And now with advanced technology, she's really into sort of sciencey stuff. But she had room to talk about. She saw herself more as a healer. She often used the word healing rather than treatment, and she would often say things like, "It's it's less about the exact." maneuver I do or the treatment that I do with a patient it's more about how I engage with them it's about mm. how it's about putting hands on them and letting them feel touched 
um, and connecting with them, she said, that's how people get better. Yeah. Um, and so that was just part of me growing up. Um, and dad, you know, he was, he was, he was a medical scientist. He's, he's still around and intellectually very active, mentoring other people um, in his field, still in his 80s. Um, you know, hardcore scientist, but he had room for, for faith, for his religious faith and didn't talk about it a lot, but, um, and was a real humanist as well. I remember once being quite young and dad had taken me to my junior, junior soccer game and he had to do a ward round where he pops in and sees patients in the big hospital where he worked. He used to treat people with conditions like lupus and multiple sclerosis and things like that. And he was seeing this woman who happened to be a mother and she was very, very, un had been very unwell. Um, and he had tried a novel treatment that he and some colleagues were working on and she'd responded really well to this. And when we came and did the ward round, he was just checking up on his patients. She she saw him and she was like, oh, Professor Baston, it's so good to see you. Thank you, thank you. And and she, I realised she was crying with just gratitude. And he, I saw his bedside manner, and he he was he was a human. He wasn't a doctor or a physician. He was a, just a human being with another yeah. human being. And she turned to me and said, "You don't realise how special your dad is. He's amazing." Yeah, and it was one of those moments when you realise that your your dad isn't just dad. Yeah. You know, for everybody there, mum and dad is just like, oh, that's just dad. You know, yeah. he's just actually he's really embarrassing. Um <laughs> so that was that was really interesting, you know, and he he also would reflect with me occasionally about what it what it meant to be a good doctor, but actually a good person as well. Yeah. He sort of introduced me informally to moral philosophy. He was quite a philosopher and valued artists and valued philosophers, and he would often talk about the role of artists in life you know and when it came time to help to sort of work out what I would do as a career his main advice was apart from doing what you're interested in he said you really we all have an obligation to make a contribution to society he said yeah you need to find a way to do that wow no a, pressure a because, <laughs> a, because um we owe that to society we, if we live in society we have to contribute to it yeah. And B, because if, if you do that, you'll feel happy, you'll feel content. Yes, and he's right, right, you know, it's, it's this beautiful advice that's not just his, it's there in the literature in the world, which is we often feel better about ourselves when we're giving back. Um, and he, you know, he he was very pragmatic about that. He'd point to the house we were living in, he'd go, you know, the if you're a builder, you and you can build a house that's going to last for more than a hundred years, you're making a fantastic contribution. Mm. Um, the artist who makes the world a better place is making a contribution. People that work in the local council, the local government area that uh, enable us to live the life that we want, fantastic contribution. You don't have to be Mahatma Gandhi or a medical researcher to make a big contribution. That's right. So he was very open about that, but he was just, he, he, he made me sort of aware that I should be thinking about that. And, and I have. So I had, a, I had a mother that was, and she, mum was very community-minded as well. She she was always sort of organising street parties and talked <laughs> to everybody, knew all the neighbours. Um, she founded a netball club because nice. there wasn't one. She yeah. had a daughter and a sister and she went, She was like, oh, well, if there's not a netball club, we'll start one. And that's still around. Yeah, oh, I love um, that. Um, 
Uh, and she was just working tirelessly and dad was working tirelessly all the time. Um, so consequently, I've had to, I had to learn um, as a professional how to set limits. Like I had no role modeling for limit setting at all. You know, my mum was, was one of those women of her age and society where she, she wasn't very good at, she was too good at self-sacrificing. Yeah. So I had some fan, amazing, beautiful role modeling and upbringing, but I had this sort of self-sacrificing um, uh, uh, role modeling as well, which I've had to correct. Um, and that's, I think that's what we all do, isn't it? We take the gems of our childhood and we, we try to replicate them with our own children and we try and we enjoy them and appreciate them. And then we try to do even better. That's it. True. <laughs> True. Well, because well, I mean, that's one of the things that I was, that's one of the things that I think about myself in regards to psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, mental health professionals, counselors. How do you, how do you not get worn out? You know, it must be very, I guess in my mind, I, I just think, you know, it must, it must take a lot of energy to be feeling and taking that energy from other people all day, you know, and to then be able to yeah. replenish yourself. So, what, I mean, what do you do? How do you handle that? Um, oh, there's quite a few. There's quite a few things. Um, there's a there's a little process I go through at the end of every consultation, which helps to partition that. So I'll I'll reflect on it a little bit and I'll make some notes straight away mm -hmm. because there's a space in your mind where if you sort of open your mind up and you just make some connections, I'll just sit there for 60 seconds and not do anything um, and thoughts and feelings come to mind and, I'm, and, I, and I get some ideas on what this person needs, what their real needs are, and I'll put that in my notes and we'll maybe address that the next session. Be aware of the emotions that I'm left with because that it just means I need to process that, but it also gives me a clue about what they're feeling. <clears throat> and a big part of the ritual is make some notes in their file. And then I can feel like, then I can feel like, okay, that's wrapped up. But I'll also ask myself a simple question, which I often get my clients to do, which is in, in what, in what way did that session go well? You know, what did we achieve? So that's part of the wrapping up so I can leave it alone. But it also mean, means that you end up feeling okay about it. Yeah. So it might be really hard work. You're talking about good things. So really hard things and the client's in a lot of pain. Um, but my job isn't just to feel their pain. I have to feel their pain a little bit to have empathy. But my job is to help them to feel better. And I have I, most consultations on most days... I do end up with a feeling like I'm making a positive difference. So you end up feeling, even though on, uh, there's two things happening at the same time, there's like distress and pain that you can relate to, but at the same time it's interconnected with helping the person. Mm. So that feels good. And then I just, you know, I do the things that I know work for me in terms of um, self-care, which is trying to, all oh, the basics, I know, you know a, like, um, a lot of people don't know what the basics are, do they? Yeah. There's this cool, there's this cool um acronym of which is MEDS, your, your M-E-D-S. Yeah. Um, so you need to do a bit of meditation. So there's mm -hmm. lots of different ways to meditate. Um, but you don't want to do just mindless TV watching. You might want to do some mindful stretching or or actually meditate. 
um, or do some visual imagery or go for a walk where you're not doing it to exercise, you're just doing it to connect with your body and with nature. So any type of mindfulness, um, exercise, diet and sleep, and they're, they're our foundations. If we're not if we're not giving back to the body and the, the spirit and the central nervous system, we can't we can't function well. Whatever you're doing, you know, even if you're a young mum or a young parent and you're not working at the moment, you still gotta be very mindful and get a little bit of exercise, watch your food intake and get some sleep. Yeah. Oh um, that's perfect, isn't it? Well that's that's it. And and but as you say, I mean I guess in saying that people don't necessarily know what those basics are, sometimes we know what they are, but we just still don't do them. <laughs> or, we, just, we don't prioritize them, you know. This, yeah. That's it. That's it. It's part of that, um, you know, giving so much to others. And it's, you know, that's something that I really, it's something I've really had to concentrate on these last few years, myself mm-hmm. even, you know, and I've, um I guess I've I realized that I'm I was such a giver and that I was putting so much energy out that I need to take those breaks and I need to come back and balance myself as well and do those things and that's where you know like well as most of our listener my listeners would know I'm you know on Instagram and that and for me often my often my meditation time is going for a walk on the beach or something and for me a lot of it is based around gratitude as well and often I show my gratitude through things like photos you know if I'm walking Mm -hmm, along mm -hmm. and I just I just see something beautiful that speaks to me you know I I love to just take a photo of it (laughs) yeah I know when we're taking a photo it means that we've appreciated what's around us yeah stopped and connected with it and had that aha moment and then if we want to share it and so on it's that's right. Gratitude and appreciation, they they help top us, you know, yeah. top us up. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. And it's all about balance, isn't it? So, well, one of the, so what we wanted to, why I brought you on, Chris, today mm. is because I figured there's so many different things we could be discussing. <laughs> but I really had a lot of people, I guess I've just noticed and I was saying, you know, unfortunately, I guess I am around that middle age-ish point now. (laughs) I still just tell my kids I'm young and beautiful, but I guess I'm at the middle age as well. And I guess, you know, even for myself, I feel like maybe I'll move here. Chris and I actually sort of had a have had giggles with ourselves and gone, well, maybe this is our midlife crisis that we packed up, we sold our house, packed up and moved to the Bahamas. Uh, Probably not the worst thing you could do as a midlife crisis, but (laughs) I'm quite enjoying it. But I really have noticed a lot of people struggling with this around me. And Mm -hmm. it seems to come in, you know, it, it comes in different ways, at, you know, and from me looking in, I can sort of see it happening. But I just thought, you know, it's really interesting. And I, I, I was, I wanted to find out some actual sort of facts about it, you know, and, and so start with that with you, you know, what, what, what is a midlife crisis? Are we all just going to go mm. and try and buy a Porsche and 
you know, or is it, is it going and getting depressed? Is it, you know, what's, what's, is there something, some chemical imbalance going on in our brains that just hits at a certain age? Mm. Can you tell us something about some, start us off? We do know a bit about it. Um, Various people have done some good research. Um, Some of it, amazingly, you know, like what we call longitudinal research. Um, There's a, there's a, a colleague who has, who I don't know, I've just read his work, who's, followed people up for 75 years that's unheard of in my business wow. you know like and from, it's pretty rare from youth to normally we people follow the same people right through their lifespan right you know, and look at what happens but that's a small sample size it's easier to do research say and like an interview people in their you know 20s and then 30s and then 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and do it all in the same year so yep. you take cross sections right and that's been well done for decades now um, starting with um, especially Ericsson on identity. And he used the word crisis. For, he was the one who coined the term identity crisis, which often happens as you transition from adolescence into adulthood. Uh-huh, and he yeah. studied that a lot. And he had something to say about um, what happens when you get older as well. Anyway, so we do know a bit about it. Um, and it's really helpful to have some some different language about it. And we need to, we this idea of having midlife, we do go through a certain stage in our life where things change and it's helpful to have some language around it. And I think midlife, that's a good term. You know, it's it's not young adult and it's definitely not getting close to being senile or really old. <laughs> Hopefully. Or retired. But we will, like in medical and psychological jargon, we do use the term senile and not in a derogatory way, but you've got to, you know, we need, we, we talk about it. Yeah. Um, and go, yeah, well, I'm in between that. And um, and there's a number of changes that happen. And a lot of people don't end up in a crisis. So it's nice to kind of go, well, there's a, I'm in a transitional phase. So it's not a judgment. It's just a term that we say things are changing. Yeah. And then we then we go further and say, my, I'm, I'm getting a lot of challenge and stress with this. Like I'm finding it really hard. And then we can go further again and say, okay, now I'm in a state of crisis. And the research that I've read says, you know, up to 30% of people will have a sense of crisis subjectively. Uh-huh. They will say, I feel like I'm in a crisis, Right. 30%. And there's no gender difference. You know, I was like wondering about versus that. 30%. It's yeah. interesting. Okay. It manifests differently right. for men and women. But, yeah, but when, when, when more, that's a subjective self-report. When... Um, say social research, social psychology researchers use an objective measure of distress or crisis, which they've tried to do, then it's less. It's like 15 to 20% of people. Um, so we could say about 100% of people have a sense of, wow, things are changing. This is my life is different now. Like I'm feeling yeah. like things are changing about 100%. 50 to 60% of people, like probably a bit more than 50% go, I will say, yeah, I'm finding this really hard. It's it's stretching my coping resources. Yeah. And let's say about 20% of people at some point would feel like, no, I've blown my coping resources and now I'm in crisis. Yeah. And I quite like that though. I, I quite like how you sort of termed that as like, so either midlife transformation, midlife challenge maybe, mm-hmm. or midlife crisis. But- Correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And when, <clears throat> when the researchers interviewed people, they found for a lot of people, there were more positives than negatives. Right. 
it's a time of tran transition that's that's can be really good and actually there's it's going to happen at the same time i can really relate to this might be helpful if i sort of talk about my ambivalence for instance ambivalence you know is when we have conflicting emotions about the one thing at the same time mm -hmm. so you know i i struggle with the distance that i've got in my relationship with my children sometimes right. and i there's a part of me that longs for that closeness that we had when they were dependent on me all the time they needed their daddy to get them to school and to wipe their tears and to put them to bed at night and we would talk we would tell stories and i'd read them books and we'd have more hugs geez i'm glad that's over though you know like <laughs> oh, i've got so much more time to do my own thing i can, I can actually now prioritize my own needs i've got more time i've yeah. got more time to spend with my wife sarah yeah we can plan holidays and we can do things that we want to do we don't have to like go to adventure parks yeah and then we might go somewhere where there's an amazing gallery and or a beautiful beautiful architecture and i just would be on holiday and i'd have to be like we're not doing we're not doing architecture we're doing parks and that's beaches. right because the kids you, you know the kids are just gonna be chaos <laughs> yeah that's right <clears throat> so i i miss it and i feel a bit concerned that we're not as close and connected and I think it's not because we've got a bad relationship. They're just young adults that want to spend time with their peers and do yeah. fun things yeah. away from mum and dad. <clears throat> um, so I miss it and I worry about it. And at the same time, I'm delighted to have all this time free to do the things that I want to do. Yeah. So that would be a classic example of there are positives and negatives in the in this transitional phase. Mm -hmm. You know, my <clears throat> a bit of a throat. That's okay. Um, my relationship with my father has changed a lot in the last 10 years. Um, and, you know, he needs, he just needs me around a little bit more now. And mm. I kind of miss the way he used to pick up all the pieces and he was always there for me. And now increasingly I'm, I'm there for him, helping him to make a few decisions and supporting him out with things. And it doesn't feel too much like a burden, but I'm, you know, um, I'm aware that it's changing and I worry about his health, yeah. worrying about his solitude now that mum mum's not there and he's got to adjust to living on his own. Um, uh, <clears throat> and it feels like a little bit of a challenge, but I also treasure the fact that I can be there for him and that we've got a now new a new level of closeness where he's vulnerable enough to ask me to help him out a little bit. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So that that father-son relationship is changing and it, the nuance has changed. And if I can manage the negatives, you know, like the worry and um, realising that I actually have to, well, I don't have to, but I choose to plan to meet some of his needs yeah. every fortnight or every month and contribute to his life, if I'm happy to do that, then there's a net positive yeah. Um, so one of my tips for most people, if they're, if they're feeling like there's a lot of stress and challenge, is to then start to look at that nuance and think and use acceptance. Of course, with every stage of life you go through, there's going to be some changes Yeah. and there's going to be some good and bad. But so just you... accepting it. I think some people that really struggle, it's because they don't accept the way their body is changing, they're ageing, they look different. Um mm. You know, maybe their yeah, their health has changed, their sexuality has changed. The male menopause is pretty mild, like it's a bit questioned, but female menopause, like it's 
well, it's I was a big thing ask everybody about... will go through, and that's yeah. that that can that can be contributing to somebody's sense of transition. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, does it is it related to menopause? Um, but I I must admit, I've never heard of it's male. Of I've never heard of male menopause. What's what's that? As I said, some people don't think it happens, but a ma- male. For men, that it's just the equivalent is that our testosterone levels start to drop, right? Um, you know, and our body is changing, um, but it's just you know some some people kind of go, oh please, come on, it's not really a thing, um, just because your do testosterone you... levels are dropping, it is not it is not the same thing. Yeah, do you get like do you get night sweats? Equivalent of childbirth. There's no <laughs> there's no equivalent to childbirth. I know. I'm thinking exactly what are you getting in this male version? Like other night sweats are there. I, I don't even know what other th- migraines. <laughs> no, it's so benign, it's so mild, but you know, it's it's talked about a little bit. No, that yeah, but you know, when but menopause and even perimenopause is you know, it's a big thing. It doesn't drive midlife um change. It's not the main driver. I think there's so many other things. So the things that that change naturally um when you're in your sort of 50s especially or from 45 to 60 say um a, a relational so you know you if you've got children they grow up and don't need you as much and they sort mm-hmm. of start getting ready to move out um your relationship with friends might change <clears throat> your career is changing and the interesting thing is change these changes they're inevitable they're just natural mm. but they reveal other changes or they you know, they reveal, it's like a storm maybe on a beach that then reveals something, the storm in itself, and then you go, oh, I didn't realise there was this this old shipwreck there or something like that. So these old right. skeletons yes. can emerge. So yeah. if if your marriage is or your, your life partner relationship hasn't been looked after, if it's a, if it's, if there's not a lot of respect or love or if there's been hurts, when the kids are gone and you and maybe you're struggling with some other things in your life, <clears throat> if that's not super strong, that will really become much more prominent and leap out at you. Mm. Um, <clears throat> or if, you know, the other thing that happens is you're like, you get to the end, you start eyeing off in your 50s. Like me, I start thinking, gosh, when am I going to stop work? Mm. And I need to start planning for that. And then you become aware of things like financial security. How much money have I got? What have I done with my life? These quest, these yes. big existential questions emerge, <clears throat> and if you're not equipped to deal with them, well, um, then you end up with emotional pain, and then and then the way people deal with their emotional pain, it's like dominoes falling. Then how people deal with their emotional pain, if they don't do that in a mindful way, they end up doing some unhealthy things. And that's when you get the cliche ideas, you know, people have an affair or they go and buy an expensive car, move to the Bahamas. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but actually when it's done mindfully and you think, okay, this is a change in our life, how can we do it? When it's done mindfully and when you say it out loud and you use your voice, which is I know one of your things that you often talk about, Suzanne, mm. in your podcast, it can be really healthy. So when somebody, you know, an example of doing it in an unhealthy way is if I'm unhappy and I'm questioning, you know, have I done well in life? What's my career been like? And I'm getting turning into an older man. 
Does anybody find me attractive anymore? I don't know if my wife finds me attractive anymore. Our sex life isn't the same. If I don't go and talk to her about that and I'm going to start flirting with a younger colleague at work, I'm not, like, that's not, health. that's not a healthy way to meet that need. I should go and talk to my wife. Mm. Kind of go, you know, I'm feeling older. Can we can we talk about our intimacy, please? That that's a healthy way to deal with it. Mm. Um, when or if or if Sarah and I felt like, oh gosh, well, we've been living in the suburbs and the kids are about to fly the coop. Well, how are we going to live our life now if we have that chat and we plan it together and we decide to uproot and move somewhere beautiful together because we've got an envisaged plan and we we end up living down the road from you in the Bahamas that's I wouldn't sure. call that a crisis I'd call it I'd actually seriously call that a nicely planned way to manage the change in our life because change is happening it's a transition so we yeah. we're actually rolling with the transition and doing it in a healthy way because we've used our voice we've planned it we know what our goals and our dreams are and we're living our dream but we've said it out aloud so using your voice and enacting your dreams, which is sort of one of you know your things, that actually helps <laughs> us to ride the wave of change. Yeah. Whereas if I go and if I don't say it out loud and I try to solve all my problems myself, I'm probably going to end up, especially as a guy, women seem to be have a bit more wisdom. Sorry, guys out there if you're listening. <laughs> we, women tend to naturally orient towards their friends and their sisters. Yeah. And they they were more likely to say things out loud, like I'm a bit unhappy with this. You know, I'm just working through this. And us guys, we have a bit of a hero mentality where it's like, okay, I got a, all right, I got a problem, I got to solve this problem. Um, and we we've got some lessons to learn of togetherness and like saying things out aloud, mm. and then we can ride the wave of change rather than getting smashed by the wave. Yeah. Oh, I no, I well, I love, I love all of that because that is that's that's obviously that's just what I'm about. I think, I think it just really has hit home for me especially these past few years. And it's one of, I mean, I'm always saying it to the kids, even have a conversation, you know, when you stop having conversations with people, whether it's with a teacher, whether it's with your partner, whether it's, you know, I don't know. I, I just find, and especially with things like social media and, you know, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and messaging people and things get, things are misunderstood as well, you know, and, uh, obviously people don't always know exactly what you're meaning or, but I just always, you know, uh, but it's me, it's me as well. And I know that I'm not like everyone else, but I do. I just put it out there because unless we say it, you know, then mm-hmm. there's, there's so many things that people just start thinking in their minds, you know, oh, is that person, why aren't they speaking to me? Why, you know, have they, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of all of the reasons and we're so hard on ourselves. But um, for me, that's so important. But I, you know, something I wanted to ask you about as well, which you touched on there was in, in a relationship, how does this work though when, because I guess that's where I feel like often that's happening. I'm seeing that happen as well, where maybe one person is further down the track of maybe Mm -hmm. because you get I think you know at these this sort of age as well I know I've you know become very contemplative and so if one person is a bit further down that track of you know whether it's maybe finding their spirituality or you know or you know just just trying to work through some of those things those big life things Mm -hmm. you know um philosophical questions as well Mm. but if the other partner 
is maybe still stuck in, well, I'm saying stuck. So I, I know I'm making that a bit negative, but I don't mean to, but you know, if the other partner is maybe just focused on trying to get through a day of work, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know, say there's a wife and, or let's say it this way, say the, the wife's working, <laughs> the wife's mm-hmm. working, the husband's at home, the husband's, you know, been thinking of all of these things, the wife comes home. And the last thing she wants to do is talk about deep and meaningful, have a deep and meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. What do they do? Um, It's a good question. Like, I think, I think, it it speaks of everyday struggles in so many houses, mm. you know, around the world. This is this these things can happen. I think um, when there's a gap in your relationship, not if, but when that they they happen, it's uh, we can go back to core foundation stones. Like this is why I love and respect the person, and accepting points of difference. Um, and saying the way, saying things out loud, it really does help. I just say that so many times to my clients, and often the role of the therapist in the room, if you're doing individual therapy work, the therapist's job is sometimes just to say things out aloud that need to be said. Mm. You know, and so at at the dinner table or when you're going for a walk or something, or lying in bed, anytime you can just say, you know, um, I'm doing a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and quite a bit of meditating at the moment. Um, uh, I'm more interested in that than you, I think, and that's okay. So all I've done is just said it out aloud. There's no judgment. There's no, there's no should or ought. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just saying, oh, that's what we're up to at the moment. Um, I could say, oh, look, I would love, I've, I do, I've like this book that I've been reading has really opened my mind and changed my mind. When you're ready, I'd love you to read it, but, you know, mm-hmm. when you're ready. So I'm allowed to say this is what I would like, um, or I'd like to be able to talk about it sometime, but only when you're ready. So we need to just say things and we'll see where they see where they go, and it's done with patience and respect in, you mm-hmm. know, in that loving way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if it's really important, we need to say, actually, this is really important to me. Um, so we need to, yeah, when we say things out aloud, it just opens up room for things to evolve in the right direction. We don't have to drive change, but it will evolve. Mm, and not in an accuser. Well, I guess, you know, you. I mean, with anything, you know that you don't necessarily mean to say something in an accusatory tone, but mm. sometimes it might be heard that way because, you know, if you say you, I don't know, say you say I'm, oh, I can't even think, but, you know, say you are saying, you know, you're not as intimate as I'd like you to be. Mm. Um you know, the first thing someone could do is put up their wall and be like, what, you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's right. So for practice, it takes practice. Like we, we talk all the time and we know our partner intimately, but we actually need, we yeah, we really need to think about just some, um, uh, a, a really healthy communication strategy, which often just is about sequencing. Like I know I want to say this, and I, but I need to say, you know, a few things first, yes. um, you know, like this is happening. So I'm not adding any, any judgment to it at all. It's just a descriptive statement, not an evaluative statement. Um, uh, and then see where, how the person responds. Yeah. And, and if they they get defensive, then you, you can repeat that and go, well, I just raised this because I think it's happening. And I, and I didn't want either of us to feel bad about it. It looks like you're feeling bad about it. 
because I'm just saying that out loud now. And you go, well, no, I just kind of want to be able to, I'm just saying it's there. And if we wanted, we could talk about it um, and and so on. And and so you're sort of you know, providing, if you like, a, a role modelling of of just love, what I'd call loving conversations. Mm. You know, and we can do that with, with our kids too when they get older, is just say, well, we need to talk about this. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to be terribly emotional, but it's happening, so we should talk about it. Yeah. And at least mm. in trying to have that conversation, I guess I feel like you're you're putting it out there and it, it is. I mean, a conversation's a two-way street, so it's up to the other person mm. as to whether they are open to listening, open and willing to listen and have that conversation back with you. But it does take one person to start sometimes rather than just bottling yeah. it all up inside, doesn't it? Exactly. exactly. I know, that's right, Suzanne, yeah. Take, and, and some things get left unsaid for a bit too long. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, it's definitely. Yeah. So, okay, this is just something that I've always wanted to ask a psychologist. So does Sarah ever feel like you're, like, psychoanalyzing her? For sure. <laughs> and, the, and the kids do too. Yeah. You know, Are they like, it, Dad, that's enough? <laughs> I am not your client. Yes. You are not my psychologist. Yeah, you know, with the kids, it's a bit easier because my my usual response is, and it's really genuine. I was like, I'm talking to you as a father. This is what fathers do. Yeah. You know, like, so no, we are going to have this conversation. It's not. I don't. I don't talk to my clients this way. You know, <laughs> I'm just letting you know. Um, you know, with with. Sarah, she oh, very rarely, because we just do get along really well, and there's a really good foundation of just trust and respect. Um, but sometimes I start to overthink a conversation, especially if there's a bit of emotion or we're disagreeing on something, and I'll and I'll then sort of be, I'll just be trying to be respectful of her point of view, and it will come across like I'm in a counselling session because I'll, I'll, you know, I will be deliberately being empathic. I'll be like, I think I can see your point of view. And she's like, don't do that. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, now I'm a bit trapped because I actually do genuinely want to be empathic, you know, I want to yeah, validate yeah. you as your, as your life partner, not as your, not as a mental health professional. <laughs> so then I, and then it's a bit of a spiral because then I start becoming self-conscious of me talking and then it doesn't go so well. Yeah. And it's happened a few times. And then later on, you know, like maybe about a day later, we can have a laugh about it. But at the time it's, it makes it hard. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I can imagine that. I can imagine that happening. Mm. And you're always mm. a little bit wary, you know, when you're out to dinner or something with their, with, you know, a psychologist or something and you're like, okay, what was he thinking about me? <laughs> <laughs> Has he diagnosed me today? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, for the record, if any of you know psychologists, when, when we're not at work, we are not thinking about analyzing anybody. We just want to like relate. And we just, we realize you know. that there's a whole world of emotion out there and, and, all, all, you know, I'd say, I'd like to say all psychologists realise that, you know, we've all, we've all got issues, we've all got baggage, psychologists do as much as anybody else. We just kind of learn how to manage it and keep it out of the room when we're with our clients. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we psychologists never want to be thinking analytically about things when we're not at work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, Chris, your top tips for combating midlife transformation mm -hmm. 
what 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 do you what do you think like obviously so it's not an abnormal thing we're all no that's right to i can't say there's one top tip there's a constellation of things that have to go together yeah so one of them is is be open to change and roll with change because mm-hmm. fighting it will will hurt you um uh, there's a saying which is time will always win. Mm, yeah. You know, we I can't I can't stop the clock ticking around. Like one day I will be 70. Yeah. Hopefully I don't die before then. That's right. You know, like like the great philosopher and the Roman emperor philosopher Marcus Aurelius says in his book Meditations, like one out of four of his meditations is he says, one day you'll be dead. You know, he keeps reminding him. He says, and that awareness <laughs> is that time marches forward and therefore we should appreciate yeah what it, whatever you're doing now you know more so sorry to get onto mortality but I, I think it I think it can be one of the aspects of our of our mindfulness in life and it does mm. help us to appreciate things more so it's about thinking well you know I and I think about this with my young kids you know like young kids sorry they're young adults you know so they're in their 20s and I'm like you should be living in your 20s now don't yeah. try to live your 30s yet. You should be, they're like, oh, I should, you know, I need to get a job and then I've got to do this and then I'll get a loan. I'm like, you know what? Maybe you should travel. Yeah. Maybe wow, you you're like the best dad that. ever. <laughs> Maybe you should just take a year off. You've got, you've got like another 30 years to get yourself a loan. You don't, you don't want to do that now. Yeah. So you live your 20s well and then you think about living your 30s well and think about your 40s well. And the 40s are a tough time. I actually had quite a, I had quite a few friends that really struggled turning 30. It was like almost like a premature midlife crisis. Yeah. Um and we um which I'll tell you about briefly before we get back onto it. And one of the things that happens with a mid midlife stress when it goes from not just transition to stress and it might even be a crisis is when we get confronted with the gap between what we thought we would be doing with our life and what we are doing with our life. Yeah. Um, that's a big part of it. It could be, you know, with our career success or how our family would look or how our household would look. Um, it's often it's often at a fairly materialistic level, or this is this is the sort of life I thought I'd be living, mm-hmm. or the income I'd be having, or the career progression. But it could be at a at a relational level. I thought I would be in a relationship by now. I thought I would. I thought our marriage would be better, or something like that. Anyway, and that can that can hit people um, at any time. But hitting the decades is when we do big reviews. We're like, oh, you know, at thirty, I thought I would be here. I thought yeah. I would have bought myself a home, or I'd have a mortgage. Um, and quite a few of my friends, that you know, it's jarring when you realise you're not in your twenties anymore. You're not you're not that carefree young adult that's got a bit of money and a bit of time free. Anyway, you know what I mean? It can happen. So yeah. it can happen at any time. And it would, and it can really hit us when we're in our in our fifties. So, own the change and ride with it. It's like a wave, and you want to ride. You don't like stand there getting smashed by the wave or trying to pretend it's not happening or whatever. Or standing up to a wave, um, you want to like roll with it or dive with it. Yeah. So accepting change and then embracing ambivalence. So kind of going, yeah, I do have some negative feelings about that. There's some loss, and I'm maybe I'm struggling with some aspects of it. Being emotionally honest with yourself. Is good and saying it out aloud. What you and I've both been saying today, yep. saying any of that out aloud is so, going to be helpful. And when you're saying saying it out loud, you can even just be saying it to yourself. 
It could be, yeah, journaling. Or like journaling or something, yeah. Expressing things to yourself, yes. Okay. And I think just saying it to one or two people, saying it to a close friend, a sibling or a partner um, and explaining, I don't want a solution here. I don't want you to fix this. I'm just saying, you know, it's just, I'm just aware that this is where I'm up to in life and I'm just I'm just working through this at the moment and I'll probably be okay, but I just thought I'd let you know, you know, do you do, you do the same thing and inviting a dialogue about it? Yeah. So being open to our emotions and, and accepting that things are changing. And then that opens up, when we accept it, that opens up, up an opportunity to embrace the positives that are sitting alongside the negatives. Yeah. Um, one of the big challenges for people is not accepting change. You know, that's when you get see people trying to, a sign of, if you look at the literature as I have in preparation for this, a sign of a crisis as opposed to distress is when somebody's spending a whole lot of money on their own. They haven't talked to their partner about it. Mm-hmm. It's okay to spend money doing something adventurous on you in your life, but you've got to bring your partner on board. Yeah. If you want to move house, if you do it together, it's part of the way you're rolling with the wave. That's all yeah. cool. Okay, so, so it's a good doing thing. things on your own, spending a lot of money, or when somebody goes and gets cosmetic surgery or they want to buy a whole new young, vibrant uh, wardrobe, <laughs> it's like you're not. No, you're not. Ex- you're not accepting it. You're like own it. And yeah. some of the some of the people that I admire, like aesthetically, the people that that seem to be the most elegant and sophisticated in their fifties, they're not dressing like a thirty year old. They're dressing really well for their age, for a man or a woman. They're owning it, you know. Yeah. And and they they you can see that they're really comfortable in their own in their own self. And Suzanne, here, here's something I want us to talk about because I, I want to I hear what you think about this because you think about this as much as me, is that when we get to a, a stage where we're confronted with a gap between what we thought we might have in our life mm-hmm. uh, here and then what is happening, um, you can see where I'm going with this, can't you? We need, we need to be conscious of our self-evaluation and have a big injection of self-compassion. Yeah. Um, and there are ways of doing that. And um, one of my favourite ways, I'll go first, but I want to know what you think, is when we do, we need to do a bit of an audit and, and ask ourselves this question, a double question, in what way is it understandable that I feel pretty bad about where life is at the moment? So I think oh, it's because I thought of this or, you know, in my case it was, you know, I just... I just assumed that I don't know that my young adult kids would be wanting to hang out with me <laughs> and we would go on surfing holidays together when they're older and and maybe you know they'd want to come with us to to holidays and they'd be at home of an evening and we'd have more interesting chats and I'm like well it's understandable that I had that vision because that's because I love my kids and we have a good relationship yeah. and I was a bit like that when I was young but but so it's not only anything's gone wrong, it's just that they're just normal young adults and they don't want to be at home every night. Yeah. Um, so in what way is it understandable that I'm in, in a bit of pain? And then you go, but in what way, in what way also is it understand in what way is it true that I've i I'm doing okay as a dad? Mm. Um is there any evidence that our relationship is good? So there's room to sort of to to look for that. And then I can acknowledge that can I do better as a dad? Always, always. But it's not with self-criticism, it's with that growth mentality. Yeah. And then I can say, but I'm I'm actually doing 
there's pr- there's plenty of evidence that our relationship is somewhere between okay and really pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, so it's a time in life where we <clears throat> where we need to be able to consciously reflect on things with self-compassion. If we've struggled with something or we haven't done as well as we thought, we need to be able to acknowledge that and go, yeah, that's true. But maybe the problem isn't with me. Maybe the problem was with my expectations. Yeah that were held rigidly. I just thought that I'd be doing this or I thought I'd have a house that was like this or that I'd have a beautiful boat that I could go out on. I can't afford a boat. Yeah, um, yeah. Can't, I just can't. Does that mean I'm a failure? And when you have a sense of failure and inadequacy, that's yeah. a sign that you need self-compassion and you should look up Suzanne Mann's work <laughs> on self-compassion. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Well, it, you know, it's really... It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because, do you know, the first thing that it made me think of was when I, I mean, people who know my story know that I am a recovering perfectionist. And I, when I realized that, that was the first time I went and saw a psychologist because it was like this aha moment and because I didn't even really know what it meant. And I, I seriously, I remember the day of looking it up on my phone and it was after I had done a run and like, I'd just done a, I think it was the pub to pub. And I felt dreadful. That's a, for, for anybody that doesn't know, that's a long, very, very long, very hilly <laughs> run. <laughs> Held in warm months. It was, you know, and I, but I was so, you know, usually after doing something like that, you are pumped up and you're proud of yourself and you're feeling great. And I felt none of that. And I was just so upset that I didn't do as well as I thought I was going to do. Yeah. Great example. And that was, that was the day that I had a, I remember I had a discussion with my brother actually. And he said, but Suzanne, you've always been a perfectionist. And I'm like, no, actually. And and he said something. And then Chris came and Chris said the same thing to me. And I went, what are you talking about? I'm like, what? And I looked it up. And when I looked it up, because I just thought being a perfectionist meant, you know, you wear perfect little suit outfits and high stiletto heels and stuff, you know. And when I looked it up, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is describing me. And it Mm -hmm. really was. It was about these expectations that I was setting for myself. And, um, you know, that sort of started my my journey that, um, you know, has, has been for me just such uh, transformation. I think, you know, I think I've, I think I, I know it's constantly going, but it's been part of me becoming my best self and mm-hmm. loving myself, loving life and being mm. a better mother more as well. And one of the big, that, that is the biggest thing, you know, when I was doing my, the compassion course that was specifically talking about self-compassion, you know, we mm. talk a lot about expectations and that, expectations only lead to you know (laughs) sadness basically um yeah it's good to have and that's why I talk about you know that's why with voices to dream for me it's not that it's so important to dream but for me dreams are dream is hope it's saying that you still have hope in your heart and that you know for me, dreaming is a belief that anything's possible. If you put, you know, you mm-hmm. put your mind to it, you can do these things. You can make a change. One person can make a difference in the world. Um, one person, 
I, as one person, may not be able to stop the war in the Ukraine, but you know what? I can do something in my zone of influence, you know, if I if I recognize that. And so for me, that it, it really was a big life lesson to learn that those mm-hmm. to be easier on myself and to understand um where those that where to to not push myself beyond where those expectations, you know, and, and this is where even with the kids, um you know, I think it's, I truly, I think it's so important to, it's something to, to show them that Mm -hmm. there is, you know, even, even if something doesn't work out, I'm always looking for the good things that came out of it. You know, Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. had, we, and, and so for me, those are, those are the things where, you know, okay, no, we did not, you didn't get a hundred percent on that test. But you're actually learning now what it's like to come last. And imagine, Mm -hmm. you know, because someone's always coming last and imagine how you're going to now be able to help the next person when they're coming last, because you know what Mm -hmm. that feels like. And you're not going to, you know, be saying, oh, well, you're last. Um, You know, just, just little things like that for me. That's, that's how I try to handle it. And um yeah, so I think it's I think it's a really really important point and that that is one of my big things. I just think that you know and that was my one of my questions to you. Do you think this dreaming is dreaming to make the world a better place? Am I just am I crazy? In a psychologist's opinion, am I crazy? <laughs> you might be crazy, but not <laughs> um I don't know well enough you might be, but not not if you dream. <laughs> Um, and no, to the contrary, I, I agree with you. I'll expand on one of your points a little bit because I agree with it so much. And that is that um, that having a connection with our future in a hopeful way, so having hope um, and having an intention to work towards some improvement in the future is one of, our, on, it, for me, it's on a list of universal human needs. I've done I've been doing some reading in the last couple of years to understand this idea of needs. I mean we all use that term all the time and we're we're aware of the idea that needs are different from wants. Yes. Um but it's really worthwhile thinking about our needs because a lot of us will put aside our needs and we don't honor them. Mm-hmm. And and actually when we get to middle age we have and our needs are evolving and if we're still pretending that we don't have those needs or or, or we we're not, we haven't really thought about what the need is, we're not going to meet that need very well. That's when I might not tell Sarah and come home with a new flashy car without telling her. That's just, if, yeah. you know, if I talk to her about it, she'd probably go, well, okay, you can have that, but why? <laughs> you know, what, what are you trying to achieve? Like what, what need is that? Yeah. And then we'll try to find another way to meet that need um, and so on. So, yeah, look, but hope, you know, hope is one of the top dozen um, the top 10 or 12 needs that we have. And um, th- there's a, and we need to have dreams. And I really like the way you talked about it. You were like, you, you said, because for me, that's like compatible with healthy perfectionism. When we think about perfectionism, there's a healthy version and it drifts on a spectrum towards unhealthy. And it's worthwhile sort of defining the two a little bit. So yeah. if we can, 
a healthy perfectionist will aim for excellence, will enjoy the pursuit of excellence, um, and will will keep, you know, in, in the face of disappointment or if they do pretty well when they're aiming for very well, they'll be like, they won't be distressed. They'll be like, oh, it's okay. It's a learning curve. I've still got somewhere to go with that. I'm happy with what I was able to achieve, but I would I want to be really happy next time, um, for instance. And so we need to be able to, to think to ourselves, I wonder how, but how good could I get, you know, and I wonder what I could achieve. Mm, yeah. And then we're free to sort of turn a dream in towards, you know, let it drift towards a goal. Yes. And, and start to make it a bit more measurable and give a time frame on it, but only a little bit. We've a healthy perfectionist will set realistic, achievable goals. Yes. Or set a range of goals, for instance. Someone think, well, I want to set up a charity to raise money for the Ukraine, which I'm not doing. It's just an example. I can't solve the war, but I could support some refugees. So I'm gonna, who knows? Like we if we raised a thousand dollars, that's something. Yeah. Who knows though? What if what if it takes fine? What if social media takes off and we we raise hundred thousand dollars yeah let's just let's see what we can do and then if i and then if i end up falling well short of the hundred thousand dollars i'm not going to have a sense of failure because i've had that range of i'd be happy with anything yes Um, but i will strive to do my very best and i'll get the right people on board so when when we if we know that we're a perfectionist and a lot of people are then you can kind of own it and accept it say it out aloud all these things (laughs) we were talking about before and then, but then do it in a bit of a more, more healthy way. So I can be a healthy perfectionist. Yeah. I quite like that rather than just saying I'm a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> yeah. Striving towards being a healthy perfectionist. Yeah. Okay. Honestly, it's one of the things we, I like that I that. talk about a lot at work because it, um, you know, when, when we don't, I think the world is honestly full of amazing perfectionists and perfectionism one of my favorite metaphors is that it's like a double-edged sword you're holding a sword and it and the outer blade is sharp and strong and it can cut through in life because it it means that we often have a little bit more perseverance and determination and we keep pushing ourselves and and when we when we discover that our approach doesn't work we're like well I'm going to find another approach it's like I am not going to stop I really kind of need to I want to strive and I want to get more done um, but you know, this this other blade can come back and hurt me. I was gonna say, yeah. Um, and when we understand the nature of these two blades, we can own the strengths of it. We can have that sort of elements of things like dreaming and goal setting and striving and inner discipline. Um, but we can blunt, we can like put a rubber stopper on the other blade by actually going, oh, you know what? I tend to be really quickly disappointed with myself or it gives me feelings of inadequacy if I'm not careful. And we can blunt that by doing things like, I'm just going to be more compassionate with myself, Yeah. Like really have the language of self-compassion and have some phrases in my head that help me to do that while still striving to see who knows how good I, who knows what we can achieve Yeah. if we keep trying and if I get other people to help me and if we're clever with our strategy, um, who knows how good things can be. So there's room for dreaming and advancing but we do it in a way that is not self-injurious mm. um, emotionally beautiful oh i like that i know yeah i really like that the double-edged sword there i like that now chris mm. what are you 
are you, is there anything that you're currently working on besides your clinical psychology practice? How do people find out about you if they're in Sydney? Can they contact you or are you, are you on social media? What, what, um, how do they, what do they do? Well, I think the only way to contact me at the moment would be through, through the, through the website, which is bastonpsychology.com.au. Mm-hmm. And sort of if there's any news, it'll come out there. My social media presence is close to zero, so there won't be any announcements there. There's no <laughs> tags to follow or anything like that at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. So that I mean that might change in the future. I'm working on a couple of things that have come up today. Yeah. So when I did some research looking at human needs, universal human needs, um, I found it really hard as a psychologist to find. There's lots that are written about by developmental psychologists that look at kids and adolescents, things that are written by social psychologists and anthropologists. But there was no good book. So I'm actually working on a book on that. There's probably There'll probably be two, one for adults and one for youth. Yeah. Um, because I just talk about it with my clients all the time and I've developed. Wow, yes. I've actually developed a mini ebook already, which I just give to my clients for free, but I want to develop it into something a little bit bigger and longer and then we'll, I'll, I'll look at publishing that. Well, you'll the have to let really me know. About this, sorry? You'll have to let me know when it comes out. Yes. Yeah, I'll let you know. Yeah, I'll send you a copy. Um, the other thing that I'm excited about this year is I want to develop a group therapy program um, that targets obsessional perfectionism, what we call unhealthy obsessional perfectionism, um, because I've got so many clients that are coming and they might be having anxiety attacks or they might have a pervasive feeling of inadequacy that fuels depression mm. or they end up with an eating disorder eating disorders to a large degree they're very complex but they're often driven the the engine room mm. is is obsessional perfectionism yeah and somebody they're feeling inadequate they're never feeling in control enough because the the need is absolute it's like i need to be 100% i need to be 100% sure that i'm in control all the time or I want to I want to know that I'm the best at this and that's impossible you can't do that like no. we're, we're humans and so somebody might then in their adolescence might then latch on to something that they feel like they can control or they can perfect their body or they can control what goes into their mouth and that's you know we were talking today a bit about how we have needs and if you can't find a healthy way to meet that need you'll end up with an unhealthy way to meet it and starving yourself is not a healthy way to feel no. good about yourself or to feel wow. in control. So anyway, I, we've, I've got a whole bunch of clients that I know that could benefit from an extra module modular work on uh, obsessional perfectionism. So um, I talk about it all the time. I'm just going to turn it into an eight-week program and we're going to run that a few times in the practice with me and a few of, the, a few of my colleagues and we're going to measure the effectiveness of that and yeah. maybe share that with yeah. the world when we've got other people have done it before. We, we, you know, we don't want to reinvent the whole that whole wheel, but we'll take what other people have done and see how it works in an Australian context in an eight in an eight week program, and then I can share that with you too. Wow! Yeah, I love mm-hmm. that. And you know, I just, uh, I just think that when you come together with like you know with other people who are experiencing a similar sort of thing or, you know, thinking the same way, just taking away that 
sense of loneliness or that you're the only one, you know, as soon as you can go, oh, you know, oh, there's other people that are going through this, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just, it Mm -hmm. just takes a whole layer of stress out of things. Um, That's right. It's scary. It's scary sharing. It's sort of, you know, we need to get to that point of vulnerability and you're right. It's so, it's such a relief. It's so freeing when you do. relate to that. That's and can right. share that vulnerability and respect that and and actually realize that we we're all human and we're all having a similar struggles. Yeah. yeah. Well gosh, Chris, it it fills my heart to know that there are mental health professionals like you out there who are so caring and giving of their time and understanding, you know, it's it's just beautiful. It's you know it's not. I, I know a lot of people as well who go to psychologists, psychiatrists, or whatever, and they're like, you know, oh, they're just. It's so stupid. You're just sitting there. They're taking my money, and you know, I'm just talking or whatever. But mm-hmm. it's you can tell. You know, it's more. It's it's about really helping people for you, and I so appreciate that, and I appreciate your time with me today. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Chris. I will put all of Chris's details on the um, on the bio part or the, the information part on the audio mm-hmm. and the video. And thank you, everyone, for watching another episode of Voices to Dream, the fabulous Dr. Chris Baston. I will see you soon and enjoy your day.